This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. On a New Year's Eve morning, my friend Aaron and I eased his wife's Kia Sorento down an icy hill with a bunch of his guns in the back. We were leaving the suburbs of Northern California with a shotgun, two handguns, a twenty-two caliber rifle, two AR-style rifles, and a black powder muzzle loader to go shooting in a remote location. Our day, which involved a snow-filled ditch, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, a sheriff's deputy, and a temperamental muzzle loader, didn't exactly go as planned. I'm Emlyn Cameron, I'm a journalist living in New York City, and a proud Columbia Journalism School alum. I work for Law 360's Tax Authority, and my writing has appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, Send Pundit, and The Independent. I also worked as a researcher for David Duchovny's latest novel, Truly Like Lightning. Misfire by Emlyn Cameron It was the morning of New Year's Eve, and a friend of mine and I were easing his wife's Kia Sorento down an icy hill with a bunch of his guns in the back. My friend, who prefers I use the pseudonym Aaron Dandelin, is affectionately caricatured among our hometown posse as a gun nut. When he married his high school girlfriend, his bachelor party was a gaggle of our friends traveling into the Reno desert by RV to grill kebabs and fire some of his weapons into the hillside including a black powder rifle, which he was now offering to give me, should I like it. So we'd left suburbia with a shotgun, two handguns, a twenty-two caliber rifle, two AR-style rifles, and the black powder muzzleloader to try them out. Entering more rural parts of Northern California, tract housing had given way to long strips of highway, snaking through snowy mountains and a forest full of massive evergreen trees. The trees we'd passed were almost eerie, so stark against the snow on the ground, and so still, like terracotta soldiers at silent attention in the fog, but for the occasional rustle of falling flakes. And then, high in the snow-covered mountains, where we were supposed to go shooting, the path had taken a noticeable decline. The path went steeply down, with obvious ruts of hard-packed snow. He started to drive the SUV slowly downhill, skidding slightly here, losing traction there. Now Aaron, whom I love, and whose friendship is one of the longest and most foundational relationships I have, sometimes does some stupid shit. Or at least, he does some things I and our other friends like to tease him about. Classics include trespassing alone in a quarry, approaching a precipice he thought looked unstable so he could take a neat photo, and then falling when the ground gave way. 
He can show you the scar on his wrist where doctors temporarily inserted a titanium plate after he climbed out with a broken arm. And spraying a canister of pepper spray, meant to deter bear attacks, into the air to test how far it would spray, only to have the wind change, pushing the cloud of capsaicin back towards him and his brother, and repeatedly treating his first car, a once-operational Prius, as though it were built for off-roading. It was destroyed one day after being run off the road by another vehicle in the hills. This legacy, but most especially that poor fucking car, flashed into my thoughts as he made uncertain progress down the snowy decline in his wife's SUV. Imagining what she might say if she saw her husband turning her Kia's chainless wheels towards the slush-covered descent, I asked him if he was going to tell her what we were doing. If everything goes fine and we don't have to get towed out, he said, then I'll tell her. You realize, if we have to get her SUV towed out, you have to tell her anyway, right? I asked. He laughed. Yeah. Yeah. Down the slope, and at a bend that came into view, we'd see a jeep, a pickup truck with large tires, and another SUV. The SUV and jeep were on either side of the truck, which was sunk lopsidedly into a snowdrift on the right side of the turn. We drove down and saw three men and a woman together, figuring out how to extricate the trapped pickup. I'm going to see if we can just get by without going to the ditch on the other side, Aaron said. Shortly thereafter, we slid into the ditch on the other side. One of the men approached us. He told us the road only got worse from there, and after they got the pickup out, they'd use the winch to drag us free, after which we could turn around. I felt a little self-conscious. Their vehicles, with big tires or winches, were obviously more practical than ours, whose only modification was a series of pop culture bumper stickers and they were all outfitted in hardy coats with good, tough boots, and they seemed like experienced outdoorsmen. Aaron and I were just gangly twenty-somethings caught in a snowdrift, he in his blue flannel and glasses, and I in my father's old pacole cap and a denim jacket over my grad school sweatshirt. I think I probably kept the jacket tightly closed, hoping they wouldn't see and sneer at the name of the school on my chest, which was conspicuously Big City. Aaron and I got out of the SUV and watched these more rugged people shovel snow away from the pickup and prepare a winch to drag it part way out of the snow. You guys from around here? One of the guys asked. Some relief. Aaron and I had grown up only an hour and a half away or so. I am, Aaron said. My friend's from New York. Betrayed, I thought. The owner of the pickup truck walked over to the Kia and shoveled some snow away. You're going to want to make a kind of berm, he said patting some snow, and removing other snow near the tires. You got all-wheel drive? Uh, I think so, Aaron said. The pickup owner and Aaron walked to the driver's seat, where the all-wheel drive button was obvious. Try it now, the pickup owner said, after the all-wheel drive was activated. Aaron got in and spun the wheels again, but with slightly more grip. He didn't have his all-wheel drive on, the pickup owner announced to the others. I felt even more nakedly suburban especially as I kept slipping slightly on the snow and ice in my treadless boots. Not long afterwards, the pickup was pulled from the snow and drove on to turn around. Then our new companions hauled the Kia free as well, and we likewise drove past the bend looking for a place to pull a U-turn. Ah oh man, we're so close, only a few minutes away. I wish we'd just keep going, but I don't want to have to get towed again, Aaron said. I suggested we go back to a range we'd visited before. Little more than a dirt field with old cardboard boxes, empty soda bottles, and some disused hardware to shoot. He'd not set out to go there initially because he found it disreputable, but what other option did we have? We got back to the bend, 
and the people who'd helped us said they would go on ahead, but we could meet them further on if the Kia got stuck again. After they left, we made slow progress partway up the path, skidded, slipped, and finally stopped dead, having lost almost as much progress as we made. Another vehicle pulled up behind us, and the driver taught Aaron to deflate his tires to get more traction. We were finally able to climb the path and escape. Man, this is way better. This is like chains. Now I kind of want to go back, Aaron said. Between the all-wheel drive and the deflated tires, I bet we could make it easy. But we thought better of it. We drove into town, got some fast food, reinflated his tires, and set off for the other range. When we finally arrived, after the setback in the mountains and the long second leg of our trip, it was mid-afternoon. This other range we went to is a field with some low hills trending upward into which you can shoot from concrete picnic tables. To get to it, you turn left, leaving the road at a small sign that is painted to look like a Gadsden flag, with a sniper rifle painted below the motto, Don't Tread on Me. People go there to shoot, either at debris already on the field, or they bring their own to place on the field. To add things to the field, they shout, Ceasefire, and when everyone seems to agree not to keep shooting, or at least one hopes they have all agreed. People walk out into the field to arrange what they want to shoot at, sometimes affixing targets to the items on the range. On New Year's Eve, there was on the field what looked to be an old water heater, and some trash of varying sizes, including the translucent blue reservoir of a water cooler at which to shoot. The field was mostly dirt, and the only thing which seemed likely to grow was the amount of spent cartridges and scattered junk. At the end opposite of the field were trucks, cars, SUVs, and vans, pulled up near the benches so that their trunks faced the field. We reversed the key up to the range, Aaron opened the trunk, and placed various gun cases on the picnic table. He unwrapped a blanket, wound around the muzzle loader, and laid it on the table. A man at the next table took an interest and asked him about it, mentioning the octagonal barrel. Oh yeah, it's an old 50 cal muzzle loader, Aaron said. Aaron turned back to the trunk, from which he produced a small mustard-colored satchel. He placed this on the table and pulled from it a plastic tub of gunpowder, a small box of tiny round cloths, a wooden knob with a thin tube on the bottom, and two small brass contraptions. One was shaped a bit like an airbrush for painting, and the other like a condiment bottle. He explained that the airbrush-like object was a small hollow tube into which powder could be poured using the brass condiment bottle which worked like a funnel. The little brass airbrush thing had a sliding measure at the bottom, like a tire gauge, so that it could be adjusted to hold only as much powder as you wanted. Then you tipped the airbrush-like measuring tube full of powder into the open end of the black powder rifle's gun barrel, after which you stuffed in one of the tiny circular cloths called patches, on top of which was a lead ball. After that, you used the tube on the bottom of the wooden knob to push the cloth and lead ball further into the barrel before ramming them all the way home with a rod you'd pull out from the bottom of the rifle. Then, one pulled back the flintlock-esque hammer on the side, added the percussion cap onto a little tube just beneath the hammer, and took aim. We did all that, noting that some extra patches stored in the rifle stock seemed to have grown some mold, and I took the rifle. I used it against my shoulder. I looked through the sights. I aimed the rifle at the water cooler reservoir like I was about to lay into a row of redcoats. There's going to be a little kick, but not a lot, Aaron told me. I squeezed the trigger, and the hammer fell, and nothing happened. No flash, no bang, no dead redcoats, 
not even a water cooler with a flesh wound. There had been barely a pop from the percussion cap going off and failing to ignite the powder behind the lead ball. Huh, Aaron said. Here, let me put another percussion cap on. He pulled the hammer back, placed the cap on. Okay. I took aim. I took a deep breath. I pulled the trigger without effect. Again. Okay, just keep holding that. Give me a second, Aaron said. He walked off. Oh, uh, okay, I said, holding stock still. I had been told never to point a weapon at anything I didn't want to maim or destroy, and I intended to abide that rule. Eventually, I turned my head slightly to see what Aaron was doing. He was now rummaging in the items he'd brought that were behind me. I realized the man who had asked Aaron about the rifle was standing there with his phone pointed at me, apparently trying to take a video of the rifle going off. He looked disappointed and put his phone away. I looked back. The gun had dipped slightly. I felt mortified and snapped the barrel back up at the water cooler. Aaron still hadn't stepped back over. My arms started to ache from remaining extended with the rifle. began to sag. I snapped it back up. Sagged. Back up. Finally, on the next decline, I asked if I could put it down. What? Oh yeah, sure, whatever, Aaron said. I felt a momentary pang of agitation that I'd been standing as if awaiting the order to fire, worried about letting the weapon dip for seemingly no reason, but found myself finally more relieved to be able to stop worrying about how I was holding it. He came back with matches and a pair of pliers. Okay, we're going to do what we did when it wouldn't fire at my bachelor party, he said. I hadn't been there. I was in New York and saved my flight home and vacation to come back shortly after for a ceremony held in our hometown. But I'd heard the story. They had been shooting into the Reno Hills when the black powder rifle stopped firing, so Aaron had twisted off the tube where the percussion cap sat and stuck a fuse from a firework down into the powder and lit the thing like a cannon. Which had worked then. But the moment had also become one of those stories about Aaron. I was not keen on sticking a fuse into the black powder in the barrel and trying to sidestep the mechanism by which the thing was meant to fire. But Aaron removed the tube with the pliers, stuck the fuse in, hauled the rifle up to his shoulder, and asked me to do the honors with the match. I grimaced and lit the fuse, turning squeamishly away as it burnt down to the powder. And then nothing happened. It burnt right down into the area with the gunpowder, and the gun didn't go off. I turned back and stared for a moment, wondering if God would delay the explosion just long enough to give it some comic timing before it blew Aaron's fingers off. But the thing didn't explode, either. Huh? Aaron said. Okay. Aaron sat on the bench, with the gun pointed downrange. Okay, he said. Try again, but just put a match down into it this time. I thought about the increasing proximity of my fingers to the powder we were trying to explosively ignite, and grimaced harder. But I sat next to him on the bench, and grabbed the box of matches. Okay, go, he said. I lit a match, and brought it to the hole with the powder. And it went out just before reaching it. I lit another, brought it to the hole, and stuck it in, accidentally squashing the flame without igniting the powder. Another match, into the hole. Nothing. Another? Nothing. Aaron did it this time? Nothing. Then he took the pliers and began using them to repeatedly crush the heads of matches over the hole into which he'd placed the fuse, 
letting the debris fall in to add phosphorus. The flammable powder of matchhead after matchhead disappeared into the little hole in the gun, where I knew there was gunpowder and a, so far, remarkably recalcitrant bullet. I saw images of the gun blowing up in Aaron's hand, my stomach hit with metal shards and splinters, and, maybe more painful than either, the two of us the subject of an odd local news story about the unfathomable stupidity of the young. And then he stuck a fuse into the hole in the gun again and told me to light it with another match, so I did. Nothing. Absolutely nothing worked. Oh, come on, he said, sounding deflated. Finally, Aaron disassembled the whole thing until all that was left was a barrel with powder and ball inside so he could look for another way to empty it. Not apparent, he said. Okay, well that's trash now. And then he stuck the loaded barrel down towards the dirt into a clear plastic trash bag tied to a post by our bench. Can't leave that there, I said. That's just a bomb now. The Forest Service comes here to clean like every couple of days. They'll have somebody who knows ordnance disposal take care of it, he said. I imagined getting called back from New York to give testimony in a case involving a lonely Forest Service employee disfigured on his day to do the trash run when a negligently abandoned gun barrel left in a plastic bag went off in his hand. I don't know, man. I don't think we can do that. We should call someone, I said. Aaron walked over to the gun barrel, pulled it out of the trash bag, opened a bottle of water, and poured it down the barrel and into the hole towards the back. See? That should render it inert, he said. Then he put it back in the trash bag, facing towards the dirt. All right, let's show you how to use the shotgun next. He handed me a pump-action shotgun and placed two shotgun shells into the weapon. This one will have more kick, he said. I brought it to my shoulder, pumped it, aimed, and pulled the trigger. And nothing happened. Pump it and try again. I pumped it, the shell went flying, I aimed, and pulled the trigger. Nothing again. No way, he said. He took the shotgun, pumped it, and then picked up the shells, inspected them, and hurriedly put them back in the shotgun, and then tried himself. Pumped, shouldered, nothing. Pumped, shouldered, nothing. He picked up the shells. No indentations. The pin's not even hitting them, he said. He put the shotgun down. He grumbled about having to take it apart later and figure out how to fix it. Okay, let's just do the twenty-two in the ARs, he said. Those two guns worked, and I had some fun firing the twenty-two and seeing the effect. I'm not someone who feels my masculinity validated by firing a gun. It doesn't strike me as requiring enough physical effort on my part to get that kind of job-well-done pride, but successfully hitting something always feels like a pleasant surprise. But when firing one of the ARs, I either missed or the bullets hit the target so fast and hard they ripped through without jostling it. Either way, there was little observable result. Once I had gone through a few magazines, I set the AR down, and Aaron asked if I wanted to try the handguns. The sun was going down, and there wasn't much time left now, after the setbacks, before our New Year's party. I said I thought we needed to deal with the barrel, which was still sitting in the trash, full of damp gunpowder and ground-up matchheads. I think we've got to call someone, I said. I don't know who we'd call, he said. The sheriff, I suggested. The Forest Service handles this place. They clean it up all the time. It'll be fine, he said. I don't want to risk it. If you don't want to be involved, that's okay, but I got to make a call, I said. Nah, that's stupid. I'm not leaving you, he said. But if we do that, we got to drive somewhere with signal, because there's none here. And if we do that, we got to leave that thing here. I don't want it in the back of my car.
So do you want to do that or shoot handguns? Because we don't have time for both. I weighed this briefly. We should report it, I said. All right, Aaron said, looking disappointed. Wait, why don't I just put it down range at that hill? He gestured into the range and went and grabbed the barrel from the trash bag. Someone might get hurt when they go out there, I posited. Nah, we'll shoot at it until we blow a hole in the side and blow it up, he replied. I said I was skeptical that was a good idea. Nah, come on, we'll blow a hole through it with armor-piercing rounds, Aaron said. I stared at Aaron for a moment. He had an optimistic grin on. Aaron has a wonderful, impish smile. A boy in love with chaos. Man, I, I don't think the answer is doing more stuff it wasn't designed for to get it to fire. Now he stared at me for a moment. Okay, I'm going to do this, but only because you have the moral high ground and I don't have a better argument. We backed up. But, he said, placing the barrel down, facing into the dirt, near the trash bag, I'm not putting it in my car. Aaron didn't want it pointing out the rear while he drove, if we were worried it might go off. We're leaving it here while we go get signal, he said. I mean, I'm making you do this. You can put it behind me, I said. He declined, and we left the barrel face down in the dirt by the trash while we drove away. When we got a strong enough connection to a tower, we looked up the range and called the associated phone number, which is actually for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. What follows is a combo of our recollections of the thrust of the next series of conversations we had with voicemails and local authorities. He called the Department of Fish and Wildlife, but it was late on a holiday and no one picked up. Aaron left a message explaining what we'd done. Then we called a local sheriff's department. The dispatcher answered, and Aaron explained again, stopping to clear up what a muzzleloader was, before the dispatcher told us we had the wrong county and redirected us to another dispatcher, to whom Aaron also explained what we'd done and what a muzzleloader was. She then redirected us again to a sheriff's deputy but the call went to voicemail twice before she told us he was probably outside of signal range and that we should just leave a message. Aaron did, along the same lines as with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and I jumped in at a few points to prompt more information. A few minutes later, we got a call back. It was the sheriff's deputy. What's the problem? he asked. Aaron told him where we were and began to explain the situation. We were using a black powder rifle and it wouldn't fire, so we disassembled it and left it there so we could... What? the deputy asked, interrupting Aaron. We were firing a black powder rifle, one of those muzzle-loaded ones you pour powder into and then put a lead ball inside. Yeah, I've been around firearms all my life. I know what a muzzle-loader is, but what happened? the deputy said, interrupting Aaron again. Oh, okay, Aaron said. He went over the story again. It wouldn't fire, so we left it there so we could get signal to ask somebody what to do. First thing you should do is go get your gun, the deputy said. Oh? Okay, I just didn't want to carry it in my car if I could avoid it. They call that place the hillbilly shooting range for a reason. You never know what'll happen there. You shouldn't leave that there, Deputy said. Okay, he said. All right, I'm going to tell you what we used to do when we couldn't get one to fire, I remember the deputy saying. Finally, a solution. You can try sticking a match down it to get the flame to the powder and get it to fire, I remember the deputy saying. Aaron thinks he might have said we could clear it out with a wire and then use a match or put a butane torch to the barrel until it went off. Either way, my head swam. Okay, Aaron said. 
And you should be able to unscrew the breech block and take everything out the back, the deputy said. You think so? Aaron asked. Aaron didn't think his muzzle loader was designed like that. Yeah, and if that doesn't work, for liability reasons, I've got to tell you. What you have to do is take it to a gunsmith, the deputy said. Will that be safe in the back of my car? Aaron asked. If you already poured water down the barrel and the hammer is separate from the barrel, it's not going to go off. You're fine, the deputy said. We hung up and drove back to the range. It was night now, and there was one sedan idling by the benches with its lights on near the barrel. I stepped out and grabbed the barrel. Is that a barrel? came a voice to my left. The man in the driver's seat of the sedan. He was a heavy man, in a hoodie, with a beard, sitting in his sedan with an AR lying diagonally across his chest and lap. Yeah, it's the barrel of a muzzle loader. We couldn't get to fire and we didn't know what to do with it, so we called the sheriff. Now we're taking it home, I said. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can't leave that here, the man said. Thanks, I replied. Emlyn, Aaron said. Stop talking to that guy. Get in the car. I did. Sorry, he asked, I said. I know, but when a guy with a rifle is sitting in a sedan at night at the hillbilly shooting range, don't talk to him. We sped home. Aaron placed the barrel so it faced down towards the floor of the Kia, but was resting next to my shoulder against my seat. I stared down at the back of the barrel. Can I move this? I asked. It's not going to go off, jump up, and hit you, he said. Plus, you said I could put it behind you, but whatever, just make sure it's angled down. I rearranged the barrel. Are you going to take it to a gunsmith? I asked. Hell no, he said. I'm going to stick it in a bucket of water or sand until I can drill into it to get at the ball and hope it doesn't blow up. He laughed. Or maybe I can bury it in my backyard and someone can find it like an artifact someday. We zipped along. The barrel remained inert. He dropped it off at his house and we arrived a little late to the party. After I'd flown home, Aaron sent me a message. The Department of Fish and Wildlife had called him back. They said they went looking for it when they went to pick up the trash but couldn't find it, he said. Fuck. They could have just left it there, I thought. That night, near midnight, I got another message. A harshly lit, up-close photo of the lead ball spiked on a screw attached to the ramrod. Aaron had bought that screw tip, called a bullet-pulling bit, for the ramrod, making it a kind of harpoon. Then he'd pushed it through the barrel, down to the soft ball, and, holding the barrel between his feet, drove the screw through the ball using a twisting motion and a hammer. Then he'd pulled out the speared ball. I don't know if I've got the heart to clean out all the corrosion in the barrel, he said. I guess this one's just a wall piece now. Aaron had his wall piece, and now I had another one of those stories. This story is copyright 2022 by Emlyn Cameron. This recording is copyright 2022 by River Cliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of River Cliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.